Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Compound and Friends. I am downtown Josh Brown. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we're going to play What Are Your Thoughts? It's me. It's Michael Batnick. We always have a lot of fun. I know not all of you are able to join us for the live version that we do on YouTube every Tuesday. So this is the next best thing. We're going to talk about technology stock valuations. We're going to talk about the Fed on pausing which is a thing that happened in the last week, uh, dividend investing, the trucking company bankruptcy that is currently taking place, the potential for a soft landing fake out, and we'll explain what that means. There's going to be a mystery chart. We're going to make the case, all kinds of fun stuff, and we love the fact that you guys are showing up for the live. We also love the fact that you guys are here for the podcast version, so thank you so much. Uh, after that, we're going to talk to Mike Lombardi, and Mike is a gridiron genius. That's the name of his first book. Mike has coached or managed NFL teams at the highest levels in the sport, two Super Bowl rings, coached under Al Davis, coached under Bill Belichick. He knows what he's talking about. He's been around the league for a long time. He writes about it. He speaks about it, and we're really lucky to have him because, believe it or not, this week, I, I can't believe we're here already. This week, the NFL preseason gets underway on Thursday night. And it's, it's, uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun this year. So many great storylines heading into just the preseason alone. And Mike is here to break it all down for us. We're going to talk about Aaron Rodgers on the Jets. We're going to talk about the running back controversy and all kinds of fun stuff. So again, stick around for what are your thoughts right now. Then we'll get to Mike Lombardi. We appreciate you guys listening. Thank you so much. Let's, uh, let's get right to it. to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Okay, gangsters, you see the chat. Look at this, going crazy tonight. Nick Kaspersky is here. Midwest Cannabis is back. Chris Hayes, Jay Luther, Georgie D. Hey now, I'm with you. Ryan Tinney, Rachel's here. Nicole is in the chat. John Carlo, everybody's here. It's a big night. We're going to have some fun tonight. We're going to get into a lot of important stuff. Uh, but first, a couple of things. Number one, let's give a shout out to Bird Dogs. Michael, tell us about tonight's special offer I am from the fine out. folks of Bird Dogs. I'm decked out in the dogs. I got the polo. I love that shirt. I didn't even notice it before when I was with you. Let me say. Fits good. Feels good. I feel like it makes me look skinny. I put on five pounds recently. Can't even see it. Yeah. Can no, you? You, look, you, no you, look you look great. Uh, I came to work with this hat today. This okay. dad hat. Yeah. What is it, like cotton? Yeah. Whatever. Have, it looks thick. Replace it with this. It's got it's got like the that material that I like. Anyway, what that, if you want, what is that called? Polyester? No, no, no. What kind of hat is that? It's a oh, it's a dad hat. 
A dad hat. Right. Is okay. polyester the right material? I don't know. Is this the point? It's like a mesh. I don't know. Hold on. I'm Ni getting to the point. Nylon. Nylon. If you want one of these, go to birddogs.com slash thoughts and enter promo code thoughts with the, with, the, with the purchase and you get one of these bad boys. Look so good. Feel good. What is it? Birddogs.com slash thoughts. As in what are your thoughts? As in what are they? Your thoughts? And what then, are they? What are your and thoughts? And use thoughts in the promo and you get a free hat? Yeah. That's love dope. it. I All love right. it. I'm going to do it later. What, what's with this? What's with the way topic to have one more, title? Way to have more announcements right, is more. important. Okay. Uh, yeah. Friday night this week, uh, which I guess is, what is that? August 4th? Friday night. Okay. What's yeah. on a Friday night? Okay. Oh, so I have a, I have a, I have a show on CNBC for the rest of the summer. Uh, Jimmy Kramer takes off on Fridays in August and while the cat's away, the mice will play. I am going to be live on CNBC, 6 to 7 p.m., with none other than one of my favorite all-time market commentators, Michael Santoli. One of the best. And yeah, one of the, for Maybe sure. Maybe the, the best. He might be. He's, I mean, top three. Top three. Uh, me and Michael Santoli are doing a show at 6 o'clock every Friday for the rest of the summer called Taking Stock. I hope you guys will tune in. We're lining up guests. We're putting together topics. We're just going to have fun with it, and we're going to try to pack as much interesting insight about the markets and everything that happens during the week into that Friday show. So please tune in, CNBC Taking Stock, Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Okay, let's do the show. You want to do the show? I do, do but before, before you start, I feel like the – I don't understand Gangster's Paradise. I mean, I get the reference, but I don't understand why it's – Allow me to enlighten please, you. Please, school me. I have to tell you, this is one of my all-time favorite market environments that I've ever been in. I just, I love it so much. It's a rally, but it's a two-way market. Hold on, Duncan, sell everything. No, no, no. I don't mean like, because it's going to keep going up and up and up. Just, I love that stocks are reacting uh, during earnings season in really varied ways. It's hard to tell. You have a lot of companies that missed earnings and the stocks rallied. You had companies with great earnings reports, but they ran up into them and they're, and they're pulling back. Not everything is moving up together or down together. Did you see the chart? That's such a great point. Did you see there's a chart floating around that's not in the dock today of this average stock correlation? It's about as low as it's been over the last few years, meaning stocks are really moving on their own volition. It's not just everything up, everything down. I really like, that's what I yeah, like. That's cool. It's that's cool, what right. I like. Uh, there is a Wall Street Journal article describing this environment, and the headline is, everyday investors are thriving in a world of wash and yield. Not only is the stock market fun again, and are things moving, um, but now there's just this whole wealth of potential assets that you can own in the fixed income markets too. And you don't have to choose. You can do both. But this is what I found really interesting. This is the journal. Quote, interest rates are hovering at their highest levels in more than two decades. For individual investors, this has been an unexpected blessing. Nobody was talking about rate hikes in this context. As a Although blessing, it, no. This is important. Although it is more expensive for consumers to borrow money now than it was 18 months ago. You should have borrowed 18 months ago. They also have more options to put their cash to work. American households, John Chardon, are earning an additional $121 billion from income on investments annually versus one year ago, uh, according to the Commerce Department. That is blunting the $151 billion increase in interest payments 
on mortgages, credit cards, and other loans. So if you don't have a lot of debt, but you do have a lot of cash, higher interest rates are better, not worse. They're actually an economic, they're economic stimulus for certain households. And we talked, you and I talked about this, talked to people who were rich in the early 80s, what they thought of the Fed taking interest rates to 17%. They loved it. They didn't have a mortgage. They didn't carry credit card debt. But all of a sudden, they were earning tons of money in their investment portfolio, a lot of it risk-free. That's kind of, you know, we're not quite, you know, doing that. But that's the direction that we've been. So I want to bottom line this, then I want to get your reaction. And this is not like a all bullish take. Um, but think about it. Your refinanced mortgage costs less than the yield you're earning on risk-free money market funds yeah. and CDs. That's dope. Um, the cost of living is barely rising now. Maybe out, let's say, outside of healthcare, uh, that's cooling off. Labor yes. costs for businesses. Um, Travel's expensive as shit. Yes, uh, your stocks though are near record highs. The earnings on your cash are the highest you've seen in like thirty years. Everyone you know is taking trips, international trips, according to Delta, and spending money on whatever they want. Defaults are ultra low for this period in the cycle. Large corporations are climbing out of the earnings recession. They're actually starting to guide higher. Gen X, my people, we are taking over for the boomers. We're taking over the government, the corporations. We're gonna, everything's going to be fine going forward. It's us now. It's cool people that grew up with Winona Ryder and Nas. And we, Pee Wee. And, and Pee Wee Herman. And we know what we're doing. And we're, we're pretty chill. Like everything right now, I think, is in this really great place. What are your thoughts? So you're a gangster and this is your paradise? Is that what you're going? This is my gangster paradise. Okay. I'm investing, I'm trading, I'm hiring people, I'm well, promoting listen, people. So, my so, cash is making uh, more enough cash. Enough out of you. We heard from you. Listen, shush. It's all gangster shit though. Gotta uh, admit. So over 80% of fixed income is now yielding over 4%. Then that's, that's going to be 100 soon. Yeah. That's pretty great. The NASDAQ 100 through the end of July up 44%, best January through July on record. Bang. Pr pretty incredible. I'm gonna keep uh, doing that. Yeah, stop with the bang. The, th things are good right now. Things are, things are better than good. Things are great. What do you want? What's missing? If you're not happy right now, what do well, you want? Well, well, hold on. It's not, nothing, nothing is evenly distributed. So for people that do not need, that do not, for people who the higher interest rates are not impacting, for those of us who bought our house before 2022, we're good. For corporations that locked in, and remember we spoke about this a lot. You know that pie chart showing the S&P 500, that 87% of it is long-term fixed, that higher interest rates weren't going to impact them? They're yes. good. Now, if you rely on, if you're a, if you're a, comp, a junk company that relies on floating rate, the, your high yield, you're getting pinched. If you're buying a house, you're getting squeezed. So. It, so it's not impacting everyone. Most people are fine. But for those people yeah, who are course. not fine, it sucks. Agreed. Agreed. But yeah, things are good. But, you know, you have, there's always trade-offs. So if you want to buy a really cheap, affordable house, the best time to do that is, is in a recession where you're worried about your job. So it's like, you know, what do you want? Like, like in other words, you, you're not going to get this Goldilocks situation. We don't have Goldilocks now, and I'm not suggesting that. So if you know you're not going to get that, then the next best thing is to say, okay, these are the trade-offs that I can live with. And if you make that list of pros and cons, 
I think for most people, especially the investor class, all things being equal, they would take this environment over. No doubt. Listen, taking you know, stock. Most, most, most other uh, environments. Taking stock. Full employment. Inflation coming yeah. down. Yields on your cash. Stocks going up. Yeah, it's been a really, it's been a really good year after a really challenging year, which is sort of the way it's supposed to be. So didn't have to be this way, but we'll take it. This um, is how this is how this is how it worked. That, that's right. This is how it worked out. We'll take it. All right, Josh. Uh, I packed a lot in this next topic. I want to start with the chart from Bespoke last Thursday when JC was on. We were talking about an outside day in the S and P five hundred. What does that mean? We were. The, you were. I was. The high of the day was higher than the previous like four days. An outside day could just be one candle, but it engulfed the previous four days. And the low and the close was lower than the previous four days. Now, I think I made the point that, listen, the, the market is innocent until proven guilty. One outside day does not mark a top. These things are incredibly difficult to call. And then the next day I saw bespoke. And then, of course, the market was up 1% the next day. So that key reversal day did not, did not transpire. Chart on, please, John. So this is from Bespoke. It is reversal oh, days, meaning where the S&P 500 hits a 52-week high, then reverse lower, closing below the open and with an intraday low below the prior day's low. Am so, I drunk so, or is there is there no, nothing here? Exactly. Nothing. Who nothing, taught you nothing, that there, Who taught you that there was? I just thought that outside days were meaningful. And clear and in a bull market, they don't mean shit. Now, maybe eventually one of them is going to matter. But if if that's like your yell, I mean, nothing should be a red who light. Talks, does no. anybody who talks about outside days that we know? I don't. I guess people I don't do really hear that that much. No, people do. Uh, maybe for individual stocks, it really matters, and then for the overall market, it doesn't. Is that maybe, possible? Maybe. Maybe. Uh, there are no red lights, but certainly I think a yellow. Anyway, whatever. whatever. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. Um, Yuri and Timur had a great wait, chart. Wait, hold on. Can yeah, I just, please. Sure. can we put this back up? Yeah. Is it accurate to say actually that outside days are indicative of a continuing bull market trend? I mean, just eyeballing it. It looks like that. They happen okay. all the time. Almost like you want outside days, rever uh, out you want reversal uh, days. You kind of want them. Well, yeah, because doubt fuels bull markets, right? Like you climb I, the wall and I so. Feel, well, I mean, do you want to be in a market that goes up every single day without, how do you buy anything? Right. So I love days like today. You could like you, things that, when stocks are trending, we talk about this, you can't think straight. You're just like, oh my God, I'm not in that. I'm not in that. I'm not I in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Sorry. right. So do you need, you need the breather. Even the stocks you like and that you're in, if you want to own more of them, you need the breather. So I like the, the reversal days. Just yeah. don't reverse. Just don't reverse too much. Just not too hard. Just not too. Just not too hard. Uh, all right. Yuri and Timur had a chart talking about earnings season, um, and we spent a lot of time. I keep reminding the audience how much time we spent last year about analysts longing their estimates and how 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 that was like fuel for the for the current rally. Okay. So half of the S and P five hundred index has reported, and eighty one percent of companies have beaten estimates by an average of five hundred sixty six basis points. The eighty one percent is typical but the 566% is outsized. Mm. Um, so not only are companies beating estimates, they're destroying estimates. And a lot of them are raising guidance to boot. How are they doing that? Are they crushing on revenue or are their costs not as high as people? It feels thought? like there's, there's, there's beats all it's over the place and raises. 
No, no, no. But there's only. I understand. How are they doing it? There's only two ways. Either either your expenses are lower than expected, or your revenues are higher. There's not one. What? There's not a third way. So I'm curious. Like I haven't really dove. I haven't really dove in into this. But well, a lot I'd of companies curious. were a lot of companies were cutting costs all year. Yeah, that's probably or, or showing. Could, up. I guess you could be doing both too. And. It's so 20 in 2022 is all companies raising prices. Now there's like a unit acceleration. Like people are buying more stuff too. Oh man. This, I mean, this is like, this is like the thing that it was like, you almost feel guilty dreaming about a situation like this where companies spend a year right sizing their cost structure, quote unquote, LOL. And then revenue starts to accelerate right when they've finished firing people. That's, I mean, it's, I don't want to say the G word. We, we agreed. We're not going to say Goldilocks, but like, that's pretty great. And that's kind of what we're witnessing, I guess. And that, well, that's, that's how the, you get the NASDAQ 100 up 44% in, in, right, in seven, seven months. All right. So we've spent a bunch of time on this show and other shows talking about valuation specifically in the Magnificent Seven and the fact that, yeah, they should trade at a premium. So Dan Greenhouse put it in a way that is very understandable and, and relevant to what we've been talking about. Dan said this, question, Microsoft revenues were up 10% and net income was up 23%. Google revenues were up 9% and net, net income was up 15%. If the broad market is trading at roughly 19 times with 0% top line growth, what's the right multiple for stocks like that? And the answer mm. is, that's not rhetorical, the answer is higher, right? Mm. These are premium businesses, premium growth, they should trade at a premium. Why wouldn't they? And now the, the, the there's not a problem, but when they're 30% of the index, it drags the multiple of the index higher. And if you're not putting that into context and you say, oh, the index is expensive. Well, yeah, because the biggest stocks happen to be trading at a deserved premium to the rest of the market. I was going to say, like some stocks inevitably will trade at a premium. That's how you get an average multiple. So if it was going to be any stock trading at a premium, why wouldn't it be the companies with the best margins, the best secular growth trends, uh, the best management, the best products, the biggest customer bit. Like, what should be at a premium if right. not Microsoft? I don't even. I don't know. I really don't know. Somebody made a chart today. I think this was Goldman, but I can't. I can't remember. It broke out the S and P by each of the eleven sectors, and it showed that on a forward PE ratio, healthcare, discretionary, and tech are all trading at a premium. The other eight sectors are all trading at a discount relative to the rest of the market. Put up this uh, tweet again from Dan. So fun fact about Dan Greenhouse, and I'm 99% sure I actually heard this and I'm not making it up. He went to sleepaway camp with Adam Levine from Maroon 5. And That's I think very fun. But that could be totally made up. I don't know why I think that. I just think that. I think he told me that. I don't know. I'm sure he'll he'll weigh in at some point. All right, take uh, this down. Well, we'll find out because I think Dan's coming back on the show in a couple of couple of months. Um, so, oh, all right, next chart, please. Sector price to earnings ratio for the past year, courtesy of Bespoke and Technology. <laughs> look, I mean, this is tech. just this is just <laughs> this is just nuts. So, okay, so so tech is on the bottom left. Communication services on the top left, which is like. What's in here? Like Google and Facebook and dude, this is the re this is the re-rating of a century. I've never so, but, seen but, but, like but look, but look, but because it's so big, look what it did to the S and P five hundred. Yeah, yeah. These, I mean, this is tech is twenty five percent. So you get a re-rating of the whole index just by virtue of what happens in tech and communication services. One final chart. Wild. One final chart. This is from Morgan. This is great. It's equal weight 
versus cap weight. Uh, and so the bottom right is what everybody's talking about. That mega cap is crushing on, on the S&P 500. But next to that, you've got utilities, equal weight crushing cap weight. On top of that, you've got materials, same thing, equal weight crushing. To the right of that, so right, right above the yellow is tech. Again, we know the story in tech. Mega cap is dominating. But look to the bottom left up one. That's industrials. I mean, anyway, it's not just it, it's not just uh, mega cap. Equal weight is working you, in a lot of sectors. Right. When you equal weight the sector and you show – wait, put that back up. I'm sorry. When you equal weight the sector and then you show the performance and it still looks like that XL, that, that industrials chart, which is the second from the bottom left, the one above yep. it. What that's telling you is you just have massive participation across Everyone. the whole sector. Yeah. And industrials specifically is so interesting. Like, yeah, energy has a lot of different stocks in it, but basically they all go up and down with the price of oil and gas. Industrials is such a widely, uh, a, a, such a, a wide dispersion between what the companies in that index do. Everything from making planes and bombs uh, to like literally making buses and 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 it's just it's just like everything. All over the map. Did you see uh, Caterpillar today? Air conditionings today? and uh, all close on an all-time high. Cat looks ridiculous. Cat looks amazing, but it's but the point is that's a top three industrial stock, and that's not what's driving the XLI higher. I mean, it is, but like all of the stocks in the sector are acting the way Cat is, with very very few exceptions, at least right now. The home builders in the industrials, right? Home builders. Do I have that right? I think they are. Where else would they be? Yeah, I guess. Discretion. Uh, okay. Um, all right. All right. Let's do this. Yep. How do I pronounce her name? She's an amazing reporter and writer. Jean Smialik. Is that right? Do you think? You know who I'm talking? Gina. Gina Smialik. No. Uh, she's I don't know great. Who she is. So, so she writes about the economy for the New York Times, and she's actually at all those Fed, uh, at all those FOMC meetings. I think she's like the the New York Times is um, Powell whisperer now. Mm. And uh, anyway, she did a really great uh, piece that I think is worth mentioning because as good as everything feels right now and as likely as a soft landing now feels to a, a very many pe uh, people, um, she points out that it always feels this way right before you get rugged. And there have been many times where the commentariat has settled on a soft landing narrative where actually that's not what ended up happening. So I just want to quote her. I want to quote her very quickly, and then we're going to pop up a chart. This is uh, Gina. Uh, in late 1989, an economic commentary newsletter from the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland asked the question that was on everyone's mind after a series of Fed rate increases. Quote, how soft a landing? Question mark. End quote. Analysts were pretty sure growth was going to cool gently without a painful downturn. The question was how gently. In late 2000, a column in the New York Times was titled, Making a Soft Landing Even Softer. And in late 2007, forecasters at the Federal Reserve of Dallas concluded that the United States should manage to make it through the subprime mortgage crisis without a downturn. Within weeks or months of all three declarations, the economy had plunged into recession. Unemployment shot up, businesses closed, growth contracted. Um, it is a point of historical caution that is relevant today when soft landing optimism is again surging. What are your thoughts? 
I think that's like an important perspective to to bring out now. Yeah, I'm not I'm not dismissing this. What I would just say is I would love to know what percentage of debt is floating versus fixed today versus those previous episodes because we already know that the interest rate market impacts housing, which is one of the biggest markets of the economy. Um, and it impacts borrowing costs, obviously, but a lot of that is already locked. So I don't know. In so fact, I do. Pe- wait, wait, wait. If people have fixed rate debt that's very low, you can't have a recession. Is that? I'm not. Like the I'm not saying. I'm not saying you can't. But the economy is much more susceptible to interest rates when a lot of it is floating. And I know that corporations, their debt is much more uh, locked today, fixed. Than, than it was floating back in the day. Because I've seen that chart over time. Rachel saying Michael looks like serious dad going to play golf or something. I, I have to say, I think you look I think you look like a million bucks. I like I'm this not a golfer, but thank you. No, I know. But this is this is good. Uh all right. Well, listen, what do you I think? just what do you think? Well, I think the the best example of a soft landing that we have is nineteen ninety four to nineteen ninety five. And uh Gina covers that as well. This is her. In 1994 and 1995, the Fed managed to slow the economy gently without plunging it into a downturn in what is perhaps its most famous successful soft landing. Ironically, commentators quoted then in the Times weren't convinced that policymakers were going to pull it off. And she links to a, po- a piece from the Times with a lot of skepticism about did, a soft landing. Did, but did, did, the did, internet, did the internet help? Um, of course it helped. In 94, the Fed, without, there are no press conferences and there's no warning. Between meetings, they start hiking rates. And I think you got a little bit of turmoil in the bond market. The S&P sold off like 15% no, immediately. No, a lot of, lot of turmoil in the bond market. I know. But the point is, if anything, there was so much turmoil that a soft landing looked unlikely then, and yet you actually got one. And I don't know how much was floating rate versus fixed then either, but I don't even think that was the variable. I think just the, the demographics of the country and the boomers making a ton of money, they could withstand a, a little bit of stock market turmoil and higher rates. And that's why we didn't. So I uh, think well, right dude, now. Come on, let's not overthink this. I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm ne- I would never take a recession off the table. We could always have one. It's always, there's always a recession coming. However, given everything that we just dig- digested, 525 basis points of rate hikes, the regional banks, inflation, and yet the employ- unemployment rate is still 3.6%. If people have jobs, there won't be a recession. It's, it's really that simple. And at this point, what could cause or what will cause layoffs? I don't know if what the layoffs. Guess. I don't know what the layoffs were in 1990. That first example, I, 07. I remember the layoffs didn't really start to 08. Um, but it's it's worth. It's, it's, look, I'm just saying it's worth considering that it always feels like it's a soft landing. True. Until it's and, not. Yeah, and That's I always true. And I always consider a recession's coming. Yes. Like, okay. Yeah, of course. Let's, all right. Let's let's keep moving. Um, all right. Dion Rebowen tweeted, uh, Shout this, to Dion. this is from the Fed presser. He said, not sure I've ever seen a, a change in policy statement with this few changes in it. It reads like the Fed raised rates, but there's no reason why. Um, so can we throw this, this, this up, please? It's basically, <laughs> it's, word for it's, word. Ba- it's basically word for word. And I just don't. 
You don't like this. You don't like this thing where they unpaused for no reason. I just don't get it. I don't understand how they keep saying data dependent, bitch. What don't you understand? They what? They told you. Data dependent. They told you. They got more data. The labor market is not budging. The last when they but when they paused thirty days prior, they uh-huh. said we're we're gonna wait and see. The full effects of our tightening have yet to be felt. And what you know what changed in in, in that thirty day period? Uh, I don't know. I I uh I can't believe how long the lag is. The lag effects that we've been told are lagging. But I'm telling you, the reason why they're lagging is- How much longer are they going to lag for? Exactly. The reason why they're lagging is because people aren't impacted by it. If you have a mortgage, you're not impacted by the rising rates. Unless you are the only idiot that took out a 5% mortgage and didn't refinance at three when you had the chance for two or three years. Uh, Right. You're not- it's not affecting the the Fed funds rate. Is not really affecting your so your household balance if you're, sheet. If you're buying a house, if you're buying a car, if you have credit card debt, yeah, you're in a world of pain. But that's not the most. That's not most of the country. So uh, the lag. <laughs> when? When? <laughs> Why? Like when? It's not. I understand soon. it works on a lag. I understand S- soon, and and you won't be ready for it. But I understand I it doesn't happen overnight, but it's. It's uh, 13 how, oh, months already. How long does a lag have to be before you have to say it's totally unconnected to... So to, wait, they started, they started in March, right? So, okay, it's whatever. We have a rece- if we have a recession in three years, is that the lag or is that just a whole new thing? No. Like when, do you, when do you have to turn the hourglass back over and just say, hey, it didn't happen this time? December. All right, your turn. Okay. By the way, go ahead. I want to clear this uh, yellow trucking bullshit up because uh, I saw over the weekend a lot of the the usual people looking for, you know, seizing on any piece of bad news to say, you see, um, yellow trucking was one of the worst run companies in America. It is partly a management issue and partly a union issue. And this combination of mismanagement and really big, dumb acquisitions combined with uh, loans that they should not have taken combined with um, a union that really was was sick and tired of listening to this company's stories and just a whole mix of things combined. And that's why Yellow Trucking, which is 100 years old, by the way, one of the, one of the, the most well-known, oldest trucking businesses in America, be- right before their 100th birthday, when 99 years old, filed for bankruptcy. Um, this company's been struggling for 20 years, basically. So, so anyone taking this and saying it's a canary in the coal mine, or it's indicative of like some huge economic slowdown, that is not what this is. This is highly company specific. It's a heavily leveraged, poorly managed, um, uh, union employing trucking company that just couldn't make it. Um, the wall street journal did a really great piece. Uh, just profiling the rise and fall of this company. Um, but they had 22,000 Teamster employees and they are in the LTL business and that is less than truckload business. And that is not a great business, even in good times. Less than truckload is companies that want to ship things, but they don't have enough to fill up a whole truck. There's room on a yellow uh, truck. And they've made a bunch of acquisitions, very large ones. They've taken out debt. 
Trump gave them a $700 million COVID rescue loan. They also couldn't pay that off. Uh, the U.S. Treasury owns 30% of this company's stock because of that loan, and that stock is worth nothing. Uh, 70, 70 cents as of last Friday. I haven't looked at it today. So it's a really messy situation, uh, a very old storied company that just couldn't make it. But I want everyone listening and watching to understand, don't hold this up as your canary in the coal mine economic uh, recession story because it really has nothing to do with it. And uh, I asked Sean to make some charts. Let's, let's just go through these really quickly. This is uh, the Dow Jones transportation. Uh, I guess this is a percentage change. So this is up 23% year to date. And as you could see, it was flat on year as recently as May. So that entire run is just in the last few months. That's not happening into a major economic recession uh, in, in the transports. What's next? This is what like good trucking company stocks look like uh, over the last year. JB Hunt is in purple. I think that's considered to be the best in class. Orange is Old Dominion. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other ones. C.H. Robinson, you've probably heard of. Knight Swift is a big one. Uh, they're fine. And none of them look like Yellow Roadway. Next. This is market cap, just to give you a sense. Oh, Old Dominion is the biggest, $46 billion. Uh, JB Hunt, $21 billion. Okay, do we have anything more on this? I think that's it. Um, so again, uh, don't listen to people that are telling you that this means anything more than here's a, a really shitty company that couldn't make it. And that's, that's uh, my public service announcement. Michael, do you have any thoughts? I don't have any thoughts. I covered it succinctly. <laughs> I uh, mean, and yet you, you, did, you, did a, you did a segment. And, uh, okay. Good for you. Okay, thank you for that. Um, let's talk about dividend investing. There's a great chart from Nicholas Rab, Rab, Rabner, Rab, Rabinier. Careful. Rabner. He said- uh, I, don't like, I don't like that. Rabner? I'm going to go Rabner. Okay. I think. I think. Generating a 0% total return since 2013 by investing in US stocks is almost impressive given that the market is up 2x. Resist the siren call of dividends, my fellow investors. They will wreck your troll. ship. Um, what do you mean troll? I mean, the data is the data. So oh. hold on. This is a specific dividend fund. This is the Global X super dividend where they are looking for the highest yielders almost regardless of the quality of the, of the issuer. So these we are the should, biggest- We should point they, that out. Well, I'm about to. These are the biggest holdings. Okay. New York Community Bank, yeah. Magellan Midstream, Iron Mountain. IBM's in here because that, that's, that's, that's not a super high yielder. Um, so I don't know the methodology. Uh, it says- well, whatever. I probably, my bad. I probably should have done that before. But anyway, this thing yields, it yields almost 7%. And I think the point that this person is making that I wholeheartedly agree with is, listen, dividends are great. I love dividends. Who doesn't love a dividend? But saying this, like, and I, we've all heard this. Oh, it yields 11%. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's a, yeah, that's a. Why does yeah. it yield 11%? Yeah, that <laughs> is a very bad strategy. That will, that will get you into trouble. For example, AT&T, one of the only reasons to own AT&T has been for the dividend. The price of the stock has gone nowhere for like 30 years. Now, I just want to clear the air a little bit on top is the price, right? So it's, it, is, it is accurate to say that the price of AT&T shares are where they were in 1993 or whatever it was, but they, they actually do have to pay a dividend. So 
the stock hasn't gone or, or the investment hasn't gone nowhere for 30 plus years. Put it, it's, put a more, it's flat. It's flat since like 2015, which is still bad, but it's a big difference. Put a, put a more elegant way. If you're going to build a portfolio of dividend stocks, I wouldn't start with, um, I wouldn't start with yield. I'm so glad like, you asked. Like, like, like in absolute terms, like highest yields would not be my criteria. Some of the smartest people we know and talk to about the subject include Meb Faber, Jeremy Schwartz. These are people who build dividend products for a living. None of them are building products, doing a screen. What's yielding over 10%? Okay, let's put them all in a portfolio. Um, so there are more thoughtful ways to do this. I like dividend aristocrats. Um, I like companies that- Wait, explain have that. Dividend aristocrats are companies that have been paying or paying and raising, raising their dividend consistently over 25 years. And those are the types of, those are the, that's a strategy that I like because it's not that those companies, you know, can never run into trouble. It's that they've been managed conservatively enough to make it through a lot of economic environments and they really care about their shareholders over the long term. The other way to do it is to weight a portfolio by dividend growth. So not who's paying the most, which companies are consistently growing their dividend. And if you had done that, you'd run into companies like Apple, for example, Next in, chart. in that kind of a screen. Check this out. So this is showing the Vanguard dividend growth strategy in purple mm. right, versus- I like Wait, dividend depreciation is dividend. That's dividend growth. Dividend, yeah, same thing. Uh, yeah. Versus that's the J is for growth. Versus the blue line, which is the one that we discussed just a second ago, and the the orange line, a reasonable benchmark is the Russell 1000 Value Index. And so, to Josh's point, this includes things like Microsoft, Apple, United Health, Exxon Mobil, Johnson and Johnson. None of these are yielding nine uh, percent because their stock went down seventy percent. Like Wait, if put, you put that back up. We don't have the we don't have the annual yields on these charts on this chart, but if we did, you would see that the blue one with the worst performance has the highest nominal yield. Way high. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna get. Yeah, like I said, like this thing way is seven. Higher. What is yeah. the dividend appreciation? Like I don't know. I'm guessing two point four, something like that. Maybe even less. Let's right. See. So if look as a general rule of thumb, if it's a REIT or a, or a common stock or a closed end fund, and it's a double digit annual yield. As a rule of thumb, A, that's probably unsustainable, and at some point they'll cut it, or B, this is a very distressed situation, and that probably started out as a 4% yield, and then the stock lost two-thirds of its value. So, this, so, so the dividend growth, the dividend appreciation yields 1.9% or 1.8%. So We should say that there are exceptions, like, um, like business development uh, corporations, BDCs, uh, closed-end funds that have built-in leverage. Like a lot of New York Stock Exchange is littered with these things where it's a closed end fund. They're buying munis and they're using leverage to juice the yield. Those will have high yields. They're not automatically junk just yeah, because they Yeah, I'm saying don't, don't, don't buy stocks that aren't paying a 11% yield because they want to, but because the market forced them. Uh, them. In the chat, Anthony Ward is reminding us Carl Icahn's company had one of those double digit dividends. Yeah. And IEP. Yeah. And- no disrespect to Mr. Icon, but it's going to be a long time before anybody sees uh, a return on that investment if they had bought it just because of that high dividend yield. That's been a pretty, it's been a pretty rough ride. So uh, not everything that glitters, uh, everything that glitters isn't gold, I think is, All right, Josh, is the best way to wrap that up. Make the anti-case. I would be selling uh, Schrodinger before the earnings tomorrow. I don't, let me just 
let me just um, let me make this really clear. First of all, I'm not telling you to do that. I'm talking about myself. I don't own the stock. I was in this a long time ago. I missed a lot of the run-up. But this is the type of stock that's getting killed upon reporting right now, and they're very dangerous. I don't short stocks, and I don't tell other people to short stocks. I'm just, I think this is emblematic of a type of stock that maybe had a really great first half, and things could fall apart in the second half. I don't even know so, what this company is, so please explain. Schrodinger is an AI stock. It is the preeminent uh, pharmaceutical biotech AI play. They, they have three lines of business. The first is they provide the software and the machines, the tools, so that companies can use AI on their own compounds and drug discovery efforts. The second thing that they do is small biotech companies that don't have the firepower come to them and they partner and they'll take an equity stake in that smaller biotech company as that biotech company works to develop a drug using the Schrodinger AI platform. All right, so um, why are you telling people to short the stock? Uh, very funny. <laughs> uh, this stock has had an incredible run because it's AI, and I, I, I'm not judging the technology or the pedigree of management or anything like that. This is not NVIDIA. This company is making no money. They're not going to make any money next year either. They are telling their shareholders, do not expect us to. Um, it is highly highly speculative, and it's gotten caught up in this huge AI wave of enthusiasm because it literally is machine learning and AI. So mm. um, I'm excited. I hope the company cures cancer. I'm rooting for them. No disrespect whatsoever. From an investing standpoint, I think this is emblematic of the type of stock you're not going to want to be in. Now, of course, they'll report tomorrow. The stock will go up 30% in my face, but I'm just saying – I would be very careful with these types of stories, and there are more of them. Um, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts here? I don't really go know through anything. the charts? Yeah, please. I don't know anything about the All company, right. so what do we got? Well, I just I told you. Sean points out that this company is actually increasing shareholder-based compensation, which Ooh. short sellers don't like to see that. In this um, economy? In this economy, while at the same time, there is decreasing free cash flow and decreasing earnings, meaning they're losing more money. There's a, there's a lumpiness to this company's earnings because they only get paid on where, where like they have an investment in a, in a company and that company has like a phase three trial and the drug gets commercialized. Maybe they sell their shares. So there's a lumpiness to, to how the company operates to begin with. This is free cash flow quarterly. This is negative. Yeah, they don't care. And likely to stay negative. Uh, see that 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 pop in 2021? That's because of like an asset sale. Okay. Um, next chart. This is uh, EBITDA quarterly. Again. So I don't have I don't trade on this negatively. Maybe wait, wait. Let me finish. Let me finish. Price to sales multiple has tripled off the low. It's uh, 20 times sales. Yeah, this doesn't matter. And. You know, biotech's valuations are all over the map, but right. but still, they missed their last quarterly earnings estimate. They're I'm expected the to. Uh, I'm not sure. They're expected to post another loss this quarter, and not only an earnings loss, they're expected to have revenue down year over year. Um, they're expected to lose 43 cents a share, and that would represent a year over year. Uh, hold on. Revenues are expected to be 35 million, which is down 8% from the year ago quarter. 
Sean points out short interest in the stock has doubled since Memorial Day. The stock is up 160% year to date. It is 75% above its 200-day moving average. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Super stretched. Uh, and I, I think, uh, I think, it feels as if... There's a lot of these is my it point. Feels as that's the point I'm trying to make. Companies that have gotten hurt after earnings are the ones that have had a great run into earnings. So yeah. you could be right. And I would listen. I, I wish. I wish I mean, these people. I wish these people well. It's not personal. I, I hope. Like, no. I, I hope you're wrong because it's always more fun when you're wrong. All I'll right. Def- I mean, I'll definitely be wrong. Mystery chart time. <laughs> All right. Oh, so, um, we've got two indexes that are extremely similar, and I think I'm going to leave it at that. What do you think? Three years. Wait, Three years, say, John. Say please. This one more time. What is we this? have? Two, we have two indexes. Over the last three years. I'm seeing percentage gains. Yeah. And as you can see, they are highly correlated. Um, mm. They're very similar. And these, we, we spoke about ETFs? them today. We spoke about them today. These are ETFs. These are ETFs. And they're very similar. Are they, is one dividend appreciation? Mm-mm. And and one, the S&P no, but, 500? But, but this might, you're close, this might, this might turn some heads because all the talk this year has been about one, yeah, all right, I'll just tell you. It's the S&P yeah, and the equal weight. It's the S&P and the equal weight. Oh, that's it? Okay. I got but one. But show the reveal. Which is which? Which is which? Oh, purple is equal weight. Yep. Yeah. So it's- Changing only, it's, character? It, no, it's only the mega, well, no, it's not. This is the last three years. That's dope. And an equal weighted uh, S and P five hundred. Dude, nobody would nobody rate. would guess that if you like if you uh, chart off if you sat across from anyone, just based on what they're hearing in the media, and you just said off the top of your head, take a guess, what's outperforming what over the last thirty six months, market cap weight S and P or equal weight S and P, who would say equal weight? Nobody. Nobody would. You would just you assume know oh whichever one has the most I apple. I wouldn't. I wouldn't either. <laughs> I'd say cap weight. Are you sure? Are you? Did you double check that? Are you sure that's right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. right. So even even year to date, the, the equal weights uh, doing just fine. Equal weights up about ten percent this year. All right. Dan McIntyre says, good. "See, Josh, this is how you do mystery charts. It is every all time. Right. I every time you nail it. Give me these bullshit well, no, charts. I, mi- I missed this one. All right. Hey guys, thanks so much for uh, thanks so much for tuning in. We appreciate everyone who joined us for the live. For those of you who like to listen, remember uh, we're putting this out on the Compound and Friends feed every Tuesday night, and we're throwing in the Mike Lombardi interview we did last night about NFL preseason, which starts on Thursday. Uh, so make sure you are it downloading does? the podcast as well. Yeah, it does. Wow, preseason. It's crazy, right? Time. All right, everybody have a great night. Thanks to John, Duncan, Nicole, Sean, Rob. Great job behind the scenes. We love our viewers, love our listeners. We appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. And remember, new CNBC show, Downtown and Michael Santoli, Friday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. We'll see you there. Good night. Hello, hello. Okay. Welcome. I mean, welcome. Hey, I'm I'm doing this. I'm the captain now. Back off. All right, you take you take it. All right, we are so excited to be joined by Michael Lombardi once again. For those of you who don't know, I'm just going to do a quick bio. 
Michael is a former NFL coach and veteran football commentator who started his career as a scout for the great Bill Walsh and the San Francisco 49ers. From there, Michael became the Cleveland Browns director of player personnel, where Bill Belichick was head coach. He then spent a decade with the Raiders under the legendary Al Davis, took a trip to the Super Bowl. He then returned to Cleveland as a GM and then reunited with Mr. Bill Belichick in New England as an assistant, where he won two Super Bowls. Michael has worked with Fox, NFL Films, CBS, and The Ringer. He co-hosts two excellent podcasts, The GM Shuffle and The Lombardi Line, and is the author of the book, Gridiron Genius. Michael, welcome back. Thank you, guys. It's good to be here. It's good to be back. Yes, thank you. All right, before we get into the show, I would describe myself as a hardcore, diehard, casual fan, which I think describes a lot of what I mean by that is I love my team. Watch every game. I know our offensive linemen. This is uh, Jets. Get out of here. But, but, but I don't know schemes, right? I can't right. look at the, I'm not watching how you're watching, right? I, I watch right. through the, through the lens of a fan. But, and I lay that groundwork to say that when the, and we're, we're going to talk about a few things today. So let me just set the stage. We're talking about the, the running back situation. They are on the decline. Their contracts, they're not being valued like they were in the past. We're going to talk about your new book. And we're going to talk about some predictions for this upcoming season. Okay, with that said, in 2018, on draft night, when my New York football giants took Saquon Barkley, I tweeted, not sure how Barkley is going to run behind an awful line. Don't like this pick. Hope I'm wrong. And I think I was actually wrong in the sense that, chart off, please, or tweet off. He did run behind a terrible line. Miraculously, in his first season, he had 2,000 all-purpose yards carried a shitty team, but I'll turn the mic over to you in a sec. But where I was, the reason why I said that is because I was always of, of the belief, not always, when I tweeted that I was of the belief that great running backs don't make great teams. And as a matter of fact, it's almost the opposite. Why? It's not that running backs aren't important, but there's a, there's a cap, right? And there's rules. And so just relative to where these guys need to be to our cap, running behind an offensive line that is good, I thought was sort of interchangeable. And if you look as evidence of this, if you look at, uh, John, chart on, please. So we've got the conference championship running backs. And if you look at the list of these players, next chart, please. If you look at the list of these players, yeah, there's some decent players in here, of course. But like Ronald Jones is a name probably most people don't know. Raheem Mostert. Even two years ago, Elijah Mitchell. This is uh, uh, this is the, the Niners and the Rams. Elijah Mitchell and Dallas Henderson. Are these guys even in the league anymore? And then in the AFC, it was all Mahomes. So we get the point. All right. With that said. Mm-hmm. What do you think about my read on the running back situation? Obviously, I'm. This is what the league thinks too now. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I, I think it's interesting that you know, being on this show, you guys will comprehend exactly what's going on because this is the business that you're in. Our business in football is very similar to your business in investments: is supply and demand. And there's a lot of supply of running backs. So why would I spend top dollar? When I can get Elijah Mitchell in the sixth round, who's slightly less than the back that I have, but he's cost me $12 million more. I mean, we're in a capitalistic system. It was, it was developed by a collective bargaining agreement. And even though the fans and the people on the worldwide leaders scream that we have to pay the backs more, the basically Adam, you know, Adam Smith wrote it in 1700. It's supply and demand. And so let it go. Like, we, there's no reason to pay them. And your analysis of Barkley was my same analysis, is they are out there. And I think we're, 
you're more right than you're wrong is Barkley's inability to impact the passing game is really the difference between what makes a, a guy you want to pay as a runner and a guy you're not sure to pay. Running the football in the NFL, going back to Bill Walsh in 1984, just allows you to kick field goals. you got to make explosive plays. The only way you make explosive plays is in the passing game. And because of that, you need to have the, the quarterback who can throw it. And you need a running back. Todd Gurley was on your list. One year, he averaged 10 yards a catch. Kamara averages nine yards a catch. Eckler averages nine six. Last year, Saquon did not score a touchdown passing in receptions, and he had an average 5.6. So the, the dual purpose, we got Debo Samuel, who plays running back and receiver. We got Christian McCaffrey, who plays running back and receiver. We've got Cordell Patterson, who plays running back and receiver. That's the trend where it's going. It's not going back to 1960, where Jim Taylor and Paul Horning were in the backfield. So do you do you think, though, that there's maybe some cyclicality to this, where all of a sudden wide receivers are so much more highly prized than running backs, and the longer that goes on for, the more likely it is that at some point it could switch? Or do you think this is now just the new way that football is played and the sport has evolved and the running back piece is just another portfolio piece and you don't sweat it too hard. You need healthy backs. You don't need the best back. Is right. that, is that kind of where, where you think things are going to stay? I, I think it's going more towards a hockey line. We need three backs, you know, so we're going to rotate them and we're going to have three young guys, you know, today, you know, Seattle lost both starting running backs. It's Cab uh, Charbonnet from, from UCLA and then Kenneth Walker from Michigan State. And then they, they were going to count on that dual purpose. Now they'll come back for the season, but you need more than one. You need two. You need three. I mean, San Francisco, you know, they had Elijah Mitchell. He got hurt. They had more set. They have all these backs that they interchange. And I think because there's so much supply out there. I mean, look, Damian Pierce gets drafted in what, the fourth, third, or fourth round by Houston, and he's a really good player. And as long as they're out there like that, you, you, why would I invest in all this money into Barkley? Why wouldn't I? The draft has always been about draft what you can afford to buy. Simple economics, right? We got to draft a left tackle. We got to draft a pass rusher. You know, some teams like to draft corners because you can't buy a corner. And teams have been drafting receivers, and we've seen the receiver market get completely inflated because it's hard to find receiver because receivers – there's a lot of margin for error on receivers from college to pro because college doesn't play press coverage. Pro does. They got to get away from it. It's harder to judge. We'll see some receivers who, you know, make make the jump and some don't. But I think ultimately this is not changing this running back. Now, what I would say is if I were a running back, I would ask to in college, I would ask to play receiver too. Just the to get Debo, those reps. The Debo Samuel role is going to become a bigger and bigger role. What did you think about the Zoom call? <laughs> that was a waste for the, of time. For, 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 those, for those watching, a bunch of high-profile running backs got together on a Zoom call and said they have each other's backs, whatever that means. I think it was Saquon, McCaffrey, Najee Harris, and uh, – But none of, these, none, of these guys were gonna, none of these guys were going to not play. Right. And say, let's not pretend Saquon scores 15 touchdowns a season or – you know. Yeah. So – I mean, unless unless Jim Irsay was on the Zoom call, I mean, we'll go, unless those 32 owners are on the call, but forget yeah. the owners. This is collectively bargained. I mean, this is a free market system. The reason and, and the, the system is predicated based on the, the same system that's predicated on, on yours. 
you know, you can find certain companies and that's why they don't, there's too many companies in this way. So they don't, the value don't go up when there's only one company, all of a sudden everybody's bidding on it. I mean, it's the same thing. It's why Daniel Jones is making 40 million a year. Nobody thinks Daniel Jones is worth 40 million a year, including Excuse Daniel me, sir, Jones. Sir. No, nobody does. Nobody, even you, Michael, though. But you got to pay them 40 million because the quarterback position in the NFL is very similar to the basketball, that so-called franchise player in basketball, you know, the Bradley Beal, who's really good. And if we don't have him, we're going to suck. Mm-hmm. But he's never going to be good enough to get us where we want to go, but we got to have him. Uh, so uh, not to belabor the Saquon point, this is 2020 uh, hindsight. Nick Chubb went 32 that year. Yeah. And we just we just had so many other needs. That's why I was not too thrilled with the pick. All right, so the, the league is going in this way. John, throw up this chart. Teams are spending less on running backs. Uh, here it is. And it's not, it's not for any other reason that this is business running backs peak generally between ages. I don't think it's like 22 to 25, something like that. And not that they're interchangeable, but they're not the most important piece. It's, it's the line. And if you have a good line that can create space, all these guys are talented and they all could run, uh, for the most parts, you know, some are a little better than others, but that's why I mean, Dalvin cook, one of the top running backs of the last, he's actually been pretty dirt. Yeah. Fair. He got injured a few times, but he's a free agent. Can't find can't find a buyer. How about last year's Super Bowl? I mean, Edward Blair sitting on the sideline next to Andy Reid and Pacheco from Rutgers is the starter, seventh round pick. I mean, they're out there. And so what your chart says is is very, very symbolic of what's going on. But deeper than your chart is this: 24 receivers uh since 2015 got second contracts. All but four of them lasted through the second contract. The life expectancy, the the juice in their lower legs goes. It's unfortunate. It's the hazards of playing the position. Now, Henry's an exception to the rule. Nick Chubb's been an exception to the rule. Eckler's an exception to the rule. There's some guys that are, but for the most part, I don't know why we're crying. It's, It's an economic system that has way too many players in it. There are too many good running backs. Next year, the draft will be filled with them. Everybody made fun of, I mean, as good as B. John Robinson is, the ninth pick in the draft, like you just mentioned, Chubb went 32. The Patriots took Sonny Michelle before Chubb because everybody was worried about Chubb's knee. Nobody thought Chubb's knee was going to hold up. And here oh, and he's gone, by the way. He retired today. Michelle did, but Chubb, yeah. the reason everybody loved Michelle more than Chubb was because Chubb had that knee injury in his junior year, sophomore year, whatever it was, and they weren't sure he was going to come back. I mean, I mean, it's a hell of a pick. So, and Pierce in the fourth round, that's a hell of a pick. He didn't even play at Florida, this kid. This kid didn't even play. Like, he didn't even play. Dan Mullen wouldn't put him on the field. And he ends up going the third round. Do you think that, so I I agree with you that this is not, and not Josh's question of this has a pendulum gone too far. This is secular, right? Like the data is what it is. I don't see a fix for this, but do you see, not immediately, but maybe in five years and 10 years, as kids start to get wise to the fact that running backs don't get paid, are they going to migrate or is running back still going to be the sexiest position on the field? No, I think they're going to migrate to be in the dual purpose back. I think you're going to see more of it. I wrote this in Gridiron Genius. I, I truly believe we're going closer to a two quarterbacks. This single wing is going to come really back. So who would back that be? The, but well, back in the twenties and thirties, you know, like uh, there were two, two, they had two quarterbacks on the field. You know, one guy would take the snap. The other guy would run with it. They were both running backs. Essentially, they could throw it. They didn't throw it. The ball was like a – the ball looked like one of those, you know, blown-up balloons. You know, who could throw it? And so – but, it, you know, who's got to – I mean, I could see a time in the next five years where you have two players like Jalen Hurts to minimize the quarterback from getting hurt. So you're playing them all at the same time. 
I do like that play where Saquon takes the direct snap. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't hate that. I don't know if they have to pay him extra to, to pull that off. But, but if he could throw it really effectively, like right. if you no, had, if you had well, somebody who could, could yeah, yeah, if you had somebody that could throw it, you know, that really could, like if you had Anthony Richardson and another guy like Anthony Richardson, all of a sudden, who's the quarterback? Who's the runner? You know, it's, it's becomes a little bit, I think this, Look, the one thing we've seen in the NBA, and the NBA is a little bit of a trendsetter, the way the people, the players can switch from three to four, and they can play four, they can play three, they can play two. Well, the NFL is getting to that. McCaffrey got his money because he could play slot receiver and be the running back. That's why he got paid 16 a year. Now, it was a, it was a bad contract for Carolina. It's a good contract for San Francisco. But when he was in Carolina, everybody was complaining about that contract. Is it likely that is it likely that many teams will be able to find a a good receiver running back combo uh, player, and then that's how the pendulum swings back? Yeah, I think. I, well, I think what what Michael said is true. I think these kids are smart enough to say, "Hey, I want to learn to be a receiver." When we when I first started in the draft, uh, working in the NFL in '84, we there the position of running back receivers were moving to running back. Charlie Taylor, if you remember him, old player from the Washington Redskins, he wore number forty-two. He was a running back in college. They moved him to what? They moved him. It was a. They moved him to receiver, and we would always tag a guy in the draft room that was a running back or a a running back in high school or a running back early in his collegiate career. Because when they got the ball in their hands as a receiver, they knew what to do with it. They were much better. Mm -hmm. And so I, so there were so many receivers, running backs that were moving to receiver. I think you're going to see some of that and go back and forth. I mean, look, the Patriots were the team that put Cordell Patterson in the backfield. Do you remember that? I mean, he was just always a receiver. Nobody really, because he's impossible to tackle. So I, I think we're going to see kids start to do more of that. And, and, and the high school coaches will start to do more of that. So, so not, all right, I think we're beating this into, into a pulp, but just one, one last stat. So this is from The Ringer. No Super Bowl winning team since 2013 has paid, paid its leading rusher more than $2.5 million. You got a finite pie, and it goes to the quarterback. It goes to the people that protect the quarterback and the people that sack the quarterback. Uh, one of the flip sides to the running back, the demise of the running back, is sort of the demise of the middle linebacker. Like, the Patrick Willis's of the world, the Ray Lewis's of the world, and the Erlackers, like they don't really exist anymore. Right. But because now they're now they're rushing the quarterback. They do in this sense, where, where I think we've lost all touch of reality here, because we don't get this from the TV commentators, is there's no longer first, second, or third down in the NFL. Right? First down was run, second down was run pass, third down was pass. Okay. That's that doesn't exist anymore. Every down is pass. So a linebacker has to be able to play against certain groupings on the field. So if you're a linebacker who could only play against the run, you're a dinosaur. You're done. You can't play. Like the guy in the Steelers, uh, 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 Kirk, Le- LeVon Kirkland. Kirkland. Right. Yeah, he, he would never play today. He would have a hard time unless they played him as the fifth rusher and just rushed him all the time. Like people said, when I finished Football Done Right, my new book, you know, what, what do you do with Willie Lanier? What do you do with Dick Buckus? Well, you know, they're physical enough that they could be the fifth rusher coming in and really beating up the running backs. There, there's a place for those, but in turn, but, but the only, the value linebackers have today is when you can't personnel group them off the field. So if I'm in 11 personnel, one back and one tight end, I don't come off the field. I'm a good player, but if I can't play against that personnel group, I'm not a good player. 
So, Michael, you've got a new book coming out. Tell us about it. It's called Football Done Right, Setting the Record yeah. Straight. What's this about? What was the inspiration? When this does it your come sec- out? This is your second book, Second right? book, yeah. Okay. So uh, a good friend of mine who I worked with at the Raiders kept saying, you know, you should write a book about uh, along the lines of what Bill Simmons wrote about in, in, in the, his bat, the book of basketball. You know, like set the record straight on what's going on. And I've been perturbed quite a bit about the Hall of Fame, about how it's become too politicized, how – it, it, who can carry the Southern primaries or the reason why they get in? It's not based on merit. I mean, Sterling Sharp is one of the best receivers ever to play. He only played seven years, so they say he can't get in the Hall of Fame. Well, Tony Baselli just played seven years, and he's in the Hall of Fame. The Terrell Davis played six years. He's in the Hall of Fame. Like, how do we have these double standards? Marty Schottenheimer has won 200 games as an NFL head coach. 200. He's There's in? only nine people on the planet Earth that has won 200 regular season game, regular games. Two, only nine out of the 514 that have co- called themselves head coach. He can't get a sniff. He can't get a sniff into the Hall of Fame. Now he's up on this committee, but he won't make it. They won't. They'll say, well, he didn't win a Super Bowl. Oh, he didn't win a Super Bowl. But George Allen's in the Hall of Fame. He lost the Super Bowl, did, had a 70% winning percentage, but never came close to the amount of wins. Like, Tell me what the what the protocol is. So this book is about I evaluate the coaches, under trying to understand where every coaching tree comes from. Because there's five universal trees in the league. The next step is I evaluate the top 10 coaches. And then I set a criteria for what should get into the Hall of Fame. Like, and then why do some guys not get in the Hall? Like George Seifert, for example, two Super Bowl wins, 65% winning percentage. But what happened to him was he went to Carolina and he didn't do well. So his second stint is killing his first stint. You follow me? So how, how important is how you end your career versus really the the meat of your career? That I it's, mean, that's it's really it's that's like what people pre- remember. I wrote about that. It's like presidents. I mean, when they leave office, if they're popular, they were great president. And then fifty years from now, we write about how bad they were as presidents, you know, or if they were unpopular. When they leave office, then we write about what a jerks they are. And then 50 years from now, we write, man, that guy did a lot of good things, right? It's always about the perception. And it, unfortunately for the Hall of Fame, it's all based on perception. Nobody's in the rooms arguing. They're arguing against one another with just, you know, throwing numbers around. Well, when so you when, you say, when, you say it's, when you say it's political, what, what do you mean exactly? What are some of the deciding factors that, that might when, be categorized as bullshit? Well, like you get so many writers that come in the room. They want guys from their team. They want guys from their town. They're fighting for their guy. You know, we got to get my guy. We got to get another guy in here. We need this Brian. We need this player in. Instead of looking at it on a blank slate, there's no objectivity to it at all. So, so if Sterling Sharp had a, if the Packers had like a real true owner, like other teams, would that be a, a that a would help him a lot? Yeah. And if he had some beat writer that was really pushing him, you know, I mean, Clark Judge helped get Bobby Beathard in the Hall of Fame. There's no denying that. You know, and my Bobby. Gosh. Bobby Beathard heard, won titles. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Josh. No, I, I was going to say, though, I've heard you argue, uh, like, looking at the NBA, guys like Doc Rivers seem to be coaching for a Hall of Fame spot. Yeah. Uh, and and therefore, whatever they do in, in the playoffs looks alien relative to what they've done in the, in the regular season where they're trying to rack up wins versus losses. Um, isn't that the opposite problem? Like, yeah. would, would Would it be worse to have a coach so focused – on, on Hall of Fame or those types of accolades that it comes to the detriment of whatever the team is trying to accomplish. Yeah, and, and you sometimes you have owners like that. I mean, sometimes you kind of get the, that the, the legacy. You know, when I worked for Al at the end of his career, he was protecting his legacy. He was, you know, he was trying to reinvent his legacy again. That becomes, that Hall of Fame thing 
gets in the way of a lot of decisions. It gets in the way of the purity of the decisions and you don't think clearly. And so this book, so I take us through that and then I talk about the impact of the draft and television. Really, you know, television, the NFL was made by TV. We know that it was perfect for television. It's perfect for sports betting, but I think three people don't get enough recognition and it just shows you how bias sets in. The three people who really impacted the sport the most were Howard Cosell, Brett Musburger, and John Madden. And two of the three don't even have a Pete Rozelle award for the best broadcaster in, 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 the, in, the, mm. in the year. They don't even have it. I mean, Cosell doesn't, and, and Brett Musburger don't either. And Cosell made Monday Night Football. I mean, he made Monday Night Football. There were three networks. We all grew up with it. Right? There were three networks. And so CBS had Gunsmoke, they had Andy Griffin, they had I Love Lucy. They weren't interested. NBC had Rowan and Martin. They had they had other shows. They weren't. So ABC took it, and Rune Arledge was smart to put Cosell in the booth because he started a conversation that 50% of the switchboard hated him and 50% of the switchboard at ABC lit up. And it became must-watch television. I mean, so Monday the, night the- was Monday night in America back in 1971 was bowling night. People wanted the bowling was huge. People were going to bowling leagues. And all of a sudden now Monday night football became the end thing. That was huge. So in the book, it seems like you, you are able to right some wrongs and maybe set the record straight about some things that you hear people repeat just because other people have said them. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the present and future uh, of football and what what's in the book for the modern football fan, just in terms of how how things go these days, uh, maybe in ways that people aren't aware of. I think partly, you know, if you, I read this book, Belonging, by Owen Eastwood, and it, and it talks. And Owen is is I'm wearing the New Zealand Blacks All Blacks uh, fern tonight in honor of them. But I, they they have a great sense of belong. That team, they, they're really part of their history, their culture. And I think with the book, what I want the book to do is is set it is try to set the record straight that what happened in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s could happen today. Like those players made this league, and we've got to honor those players. And it becomes a sense of belonging. And when you honor the past, I really feel like we've, you know, to not have Joe Montana as your top five quarterback is an injustice. To think that only the current players are the best players, to me, we owe it, I owe it, if I to people to try to educate them on how good Johnny Unitas was, how great Dick Buckus was, how Night Train Lane was unbelievable, and how Larry Wilson did this. And then, you know, other coaches created this situation. I mean, if it wasn't for Paul Brown, we wouldn't have coaches. Paul Brown was the Bill Gates of the NFL coaching trees because he developed the software for all the coaches that they still use today. Not technically on the computer, but scouting, advanced scouting, all the things that we do. And, and if we don't honor that, like, and I think the NFL does a really bad job of this. Like, why don't, why isn't the coach of the year award the Paul Brown award? You know, why isn't the combine, the Al Davis combine? Like, we don't honor it. And so what happens is we lose sight of, of what made this league so great. What is yeah. it? Is it is it the Tostitos coach of the year? Like, what? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think that's what it is. It could be the Paul Brown Tostitos. We could put, you know, I just think we lose sight of what makes it so great. Why do we all want to watch the Masters? You know, why do we all? Because they have such great tradition and they sell tradition. 
You know, I know the the, the egg salad sandwich is, a, is another part, though. Everybody wants to go down there. But the reality of it is, is we know the course. We know the history of the course. You know those two things, and we honor the history. You don't hear anybody saying Bobby Jones can't play golf at the Masters today, do you? You never hear that. I think the NBA does a really great, great job. And matter of fact, they just named a bunch of awards after former players. I, I heard, I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, the Super Bowl did more revenue than the entire NBA playoffs. Yeah, did you know that? Well, the ratings, I mean, the NBA, I believe the NBA just laid off 60 people in their offices. I mean, it's not a good thing in the NBA right now. Uh, the ratings this year, the, the, the NFL Super Bowl, and I think it was a 115.2 million homes. And the NBA Finals was in 13.2. It was the first time there's been a hundred million home gap in that. Huge gap. And yet, and yet the contracts, again, for, for reasons that are sort of obvious, like the physical part of it, look wildly different. The owners, this the owner situation in the NFL and the NBA could not be more different. Matter of fact, speaking of that, uh, I believe you grew up a Redskins fan. What do you what do you think of what's going on there? Is this is this a good thing? I mean, it can't be a bad thing. Dan Snyder was the absolute worst. Well, no, no. George Preston Marshall was the worst. I mean, no, we don't talk about that. He's in the Hall of Fame. That's George before Preston my time. Marshall, right. But he wouldn't allow black players on the team until 1960. Bobby Mitchell. I mean, there was a period in the NFL where there were no black players till 46. And so, and Preston Marshall was really responsible for that. But look, Dan Snyder, I, I really wanted to do, I want to do, maybe we should do this pod. I've been wanting to do a pod about, you know, the, 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 the series that they run, how I built this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the best thing that really, I, I think that's a wonderful thing to listen to, but we learn more from how I destroyed this. Right? He made five, he made $5 billion Can between purchase this? and sale. Can you believe this? When I, I mean, read the number, I double checked that I couldn't disgrace. believe it. Right, and he did it all on a he did it all on a string and a prayer. I mean, literally. What he, is so? What is the message behind that? Well, he he used <laughs> litigation as his powerful tool that he would sue. I mean, he's in business. You guys know Howard Milstein. He he and Howard Milstein were supposed to buy the team together originally. This whole thing started because Jack Kent Cook wouldn't sell the team to his son. Wouldn't give the team to his son. He made it go to bid. And that created this fiasco. And then they got Snyder involved. And Snyder, they changed the lending rules to let Snyder in. And then he just systematically destroyed. This was a team that had great history. It was unbelievable. And he just started to run it like a fan, a bad fan. And he destroyed it. And yet he gets rewarded with $6 billion, $5 billion. I mean, so he pays the $60 million. I mean, that's a deck chair off the Titanic. Yeah, it's 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 wild. Um, I wanted to make sure b- that uh, we have some time to talk about uh, Aaron Rodgers and the Jets. Yeah, for like from my perspective as a football fan, but not like you know incredibly in depth on everything. When I talk to people about football, this seems to be what everyone wants to talk about. I'm mm-hmm. from Long Island, so you can understand that. Sure. Uh, are people too excited or not excited enough, or well, is it too early? No, I think they're. I think the enthusiasm is justifiable. I mean, the guy did not play well last year, but he's a typically he's a really good player. And the Jets are a team that was a good team without a quarterback last year. Mm-hmm. Now, the second half of the season when they or went maybe one, the worst, maybe the worst quarter, actually maybe, worse than not a quarterback. Well, the other part about the Jets too that I think that gets overlooked is their defense only created two turnovers over the last seven games of the season, so they didn't create, they didn't help their offense either. But more than anything, the, the offense hurt them. There was no question. And they needed to make changes. They fired Mike LaFleur. They changed their O-line coach. So there's a lot of reason to be enthusiastic about the Jets. Now, my question is, is, is it goes back to your industry, just like everything in the NFL goes back to business. Can we become 
great all of a sudden? Or do we need to be good to get to great? And I think there needs to be a little bit of a let's lower our expectations. Like when Brady first went to Tampa, they weren't playing very well at first. And then eventually they became great and they got better at the end of the year. I just hope the Jets manage it better than that. Because if they start out with that tough schedule and they're not playing their best football, what's going to happen? Is it going to fall apart? And they're going to need the leader to kind of hold it all together. And that's going to be their head coach. John, can we throw up this chart of 2023 over under? These are for the win totals. Uh, I got this from FanDuel, which I'm a huge fan of. Uh, here's what jumps out to me, Michael, and I want to get your take on this. So what this shows is this is this is the over under for the, for the win totals for next year. You can bet the over, you can bet the under, and the lines are skewed. Uh, that's probably too much on the weeds. But anyway, all right. Uh, the New York Jets, as we just discussed, nine and a half wins. So there's tiers. There's 11 and a half wins, 10 and a half, nine and a half. That's where the Jets live. So I think that, uh, not I think, the betting industry is expecting a lot of wins from them. They jump off the page to me and so do the Saints at nine and a half wins. Uh, Because what, Derek Carr? I don't understand this one. Help me figure this out. Well, Carr, I mean, look, Carr did not play well last year, no matter how you want to slice it. I mean, my my son's the offense coordinator, so full disclosure. But when you just watch the tape, I mean, he missed a lot of throws. He didn't play to the level that he played a year before. So I think, you know, they're counting on him to rebound. And, uh, you know, do what the Saints, are they good enough on defense? I think there's always those sucker plays on those wins. When it looks too easy, Michael, you stay away. Like, the pick, like let's take the Steelers, eight and a half. Mike Tomlin hasn't had a losing season. He's a really good coach. He's really mm-hmm. a good leader. You know, they they, they played well last year. Second half of the season, they were as good as the Detroit Lions, Right. They were as good as the Detroit Lions. They only had five turnovers all in the second last nine games of the season. They ran the football more effectively. Their defense when Watt came back was better. And now they're sitting at eight and a half. I think Mike Tomlin will win more games. I think Washington with the new owner at six and a half. Now, I know all those six and a half teams have questionable quarterbacks. But Washington's talent. I mean, they were the best third down team in football last year. They played really good in the red zone. They're a really good defense. If they don't screw it up on offense... They should win seven games. I mean, my lord, that's not that hard. So I went, Bra- through, the, the, I went through the Jets' schedule. I didn't. I didn't see it as a. T- the Giants seem to have a tougher schedule. I, I mean, you figure the Jets will lose to Philadelphia. They'll lose to Mahomes. I'll. I'll, I'll take those from them. Uh, well, they play the those, Dolphins. The Dolphins twice and the Bills twice. Yeah, yeah, and, the, and everybody counts out the Patriots because guilty. You know, you know, they all, everybody just counts at it, even though nobody's afraid of the Patriots now. No, nobody's afraid of them because, as Asante Samuel said, it was Brady that won all of it. Let me ask both of you two a question here. You know, in Super Bowl, that the first Super Bowl that Brady won in New England, how many yards did he throw for in that game? Against the Rams? I think yeah. it was like 150 or something. 134. They yeah. rushed for 133. Mm. So my point with bringing that up is, is, yeah, you need a great quarterback, and he was great. But the, the three elements have to work together for you to win a title. The that three elements defense. have to work together. They were great on defense. They, can, they, they forced seven turnovers in the two playoff games, the divisional champ, the, the conference championship, and the Super Bowl. They created seven turnovers. So you, you got to have all that. And for any team to get over their win total, they have to have all three. And that comes down to the head coach, making sure that all three units work together. Right? Mike, I'm because so glad you said that. I'm sorry, finish your thought. Sport. Football is the only, well, not the only one, but it's very few. You know, in your job description in football, and you're the offensive coordinator of the Jets, your Nathaniel Hackett's job is to get first downs, score points, and, and, and 
you know, keep the ball, right? The defense coordinator's job is to stop them from scoring, stop them, you know, to create turnovers and stop them from yards. The only guy whose job description says winning is matters is the head coach. So it's his job to manage the three units so that you do everything in, in your power to help your team win, or else you'll have a guy who gets a lot of yards, but you don't win games. Were you surprised that Sean Payton said what he said about Hackett, no. given that? No. Why? No, because I think he wanted to put the onus on him. I think he flipped it. I think he wanted to say to everybody on his team, I got your back and I'll, I'll take the bullet because when shit falls apart here, everybody will look to me. And that's what I want. I want everybody to blame me if it doesn't go well. Back to uh, back to Aaron Rodgers. You have talked about culture a lot, and I don't think when most people think about culture among NFL teams, they think of the Jets. Yeah. Um, can is has is the culture there sufficiently prepared to actually take what they're being given and and do something with it? Like throwing a superstar into a, a non culture usually doesn't work. Yeah, that's what, uh, I guess that's what could, but I'd concerned. love to hear what you think. That's what has me most concerned about. That's why I said we've got to get – I mean, when Salah came out and said we're one of the six or seven, again, he didn't look back on history. So since Namath made the prediction, the Jets have only been to, to the playoffs 13 times. Since Namath made that prediction in 68. You know, they haven't been to playoffs since 2000. This is not an organization that's just draped in winning or understands what it takes to win. And so when he makes that statement, he's basically saying we can cut all the corners. And you can't cut the corners. Like he should be downplaying it. He should be saying, look, we got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to do. We can't, you know, we're not any good yet. We haven't beaten anybody. Just because we've got Aaron Rodgers, we haven't beaten anybody. But they're taking the other approach. And I've not seen that approach ever work. That's what we're They don't have much me. time, though. It's a 39-year-old quarterback. <laughs> but but he can What's say that? that publicly, that he can say what I just said publicly, but he's yeah. got to drive the team. I mean, the, the leader of the team has to make everybody better. What team are you most uh, excited? What what team are you most excited about this year, or what do you think is going to be the biggest surprise to the rest of us? I think Cleveland's really a good team, and I think that Deshaun Watson cannot play as bad as he did last year. I just don't think that's possible. I don't think he got that contract because all of a sudden he was bad. You know, he just. I think they're really good. I think coaching matters in the NFL. I think Jim Schwartz will really do a good job defensively. And I think they'll be able to rush the passer. I think he'll help Kevin Stefanski as a head coach. I know it's a tough division because you got Tomlin in there and he's good. And then you got Harbaugh at the Ravens. So I think that's that's a team. I think Seattle's better than people think. I mean, they started two rookie tackles last year. Their defense has improved in the offseason. They've had a really good offseason. I think they'll catch somebody. I mean, I don't think the Rams are – I know the Rams are not very talented, even though they think they can come back from it. The Cardinals are going to go through a rebuilding. So you have a chance there. Wait, Michael, me, pause. I want to ask you about the Cardinals. So the they have the lowest over-under. It's four and a half wins. The next lowest is six and a half. So that's a pretty big gap. And in that group, it's the Texans, the Colts, the Rams, the Bucks, and the uh, Commanders. I actually bet the over on the Cardinals, not because I think they're good, but I went in their schedule and they've got four really, really easy games. I'm not out of division. I'm not even talking about the Rams. Uh, I know Colt McCoy is, he's a backup, right? That's what he is. But, but four that and doesn't half, stay healthy. He can't, he doesn't stay healthy. That's the problem. Four so and a half games is they're going to they're going to win four three. I mean, I mean the, Bear, the Bears won the Bears won four last year with the with Justin Fields. Who everybody thinks going to be the MVP this year. So like I think it's hard. I think it's going to be hard. They're not very talented. That was a really bad job. Now when Murray comes back, you think they could win? Who are they throwing the ball to? 
you know, how are they going to stop people? And then they're going to get behind. You know, they're going to, to me, the Cardinals are going to be what I call a good 50-minute team. They'll play probably good for 50 minutes, but then it'll all fall apart, so much like the Texans last year. Garb, uh, you mentioned head coaches a few times. Uh, much to my chagrin, or maybe I guess I like that, that nobody expects much from us. The New York Giants, in my estimation of one of the top five head coaches in the NFL and Brian Dable, and they've got us at seven and a half. They got the Fal- I know it's a different division. Falcons at eight and a half. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of that is because, you know, make us feel better. No, I don't know. Please, please tell well, me. I, I think the schedule's ch- more challenging this year, right? Yeah. And and look, let's be clear. You're a giant fan, but if you watch that Eagle playoff game, you're down 28 to nothing before that before you can even move. I mean, I mean we were we were outmatched. We were lucky to be that's there. That's right. That's right. You're completely outmatched. And that's the point. Is you're out have you closed the gap? And I, I don't know if not, they've not closed between that. us and them. Well, but San Francisco, have you closed the gap on them? Have you closed the, you know, I mean, I think the NFC is a little bit of a disparity because there's two really good teams. Three, count the Cowboys. You didn't really come close. The Cowboy game, when Cooper Rush played the quarterback, that was a 6-6 game with yeah. with three with three minutes to go in the third quarter. And all of a sudden, you know, you go up 13-6 to six on the big run by Barkley, but then they they come down the field. Detroit, Detroit didn't make the playoffs. Detroit beat them last year. They killed year, us, so. yeah. Yeah, they were – I mean, I think a lot of it is the Giants were fortunate with the schedule. I think Brian – has to have his best coach. Last year, he did a great job of managing the game, keeping himself in the game in the fourth quarter, and finding a way to win it. That formula worked last year. They're going to have to alter that formula, and I think that that win total is a reflection of can they alter that. But oh. look, look who Danny was throwing to. Like Richie James, Isaiah Hodgins. So he brought in Waller, the rookie. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name, who allegedly ran 24 miles an hour today. J- Jalen Hyatt. And and Lendell Robinson, who who tore his uh, was hurt last year. Yeah, so we got but, some we got some weapons. And the line back. should be better, but you know they they still have to who they got they got to cover people. I mean, I just think they're a draft away. I mean, they were in really severe cap problems, and they, they've kind of managed it through. We'll see. I mean, I think Dexter Lawrence is outstanding. Monster. He's a really good player, but they got to get better at linebacker. Can they? We'll see. Hey, uh, Mike. Let's tell let's tell everyone a little bit about your podcast where they could hear from you more often. Yeah. And and then we'll let you uh, go enjoy your night. So Thank I you. love your show. Thank I you. love your 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 uh, what's your host name? Your, so your co-host. Femi Abebefe. He's Femi he's is great. Yeah, he's yeah. great. I love. He hasn't watched all the Sopranos yet, but I'm giving him shit for that. But I mean, he's you good. guys have a good count. You guys have a good. Uh, yeah, and he uh, lets uh, me spiel. he That's lets important. me rub on him a little bit too. You know, he's such a fan. He's a cowboy fan. He can't help himself. Yeah. You know, and he and he loves everybody. You can't love everybody in this league. You got to kind of have to make a stand. But he's tremendous. And GM Shuffle, we did. We just did a show Monday, Thursday, all through the season. And then yeah. uh, I do a, a Lombardi line, which is on VSIN, which is owned by DraftKings. We do that on the DraftKings network and then on VSIN on, on YouTube, where you can listen to it. We're on a, a zillion terrestrial radio stations throughout the country. How excited do you get right now? Like as we're as as the season is coming up, are you are you super stoked? Yeah. I'm really excited. I mean, I love the fact of. I love the, the building the team and then seeing what you built. Does it work? And then evaluating. I think we get so caught. It's it's no different than any other business. You want to build something and then you want to see what it goes and how it pro- progresses and the development of it. And then partly, which to me, the strategy of it all is what do you need to do to fix your team? Like, what do you need to do to correct the mistakes or what what five or six moves do you need to make to fix it? And those things kind of go overlooked because we're not filming a Hollywood movie here. I mean, it's not going to go perfectly. 
You know, it's going to be rough. That's the Jets thing. It's you're going to get some rocky roads. How do you handle? It? And then well, the thing leadership, the leadership thing to me is so compelling because if you have a great leader and a great coach, which all one and the same, like Mike Rabel at Tennessee, you'll find ways to win games. Absolutely. Well, Michael, we love uh, following the season from the perspective of a GM. Yeah. It's a really cool idea that you had for the show. We'll be listening. I hope all of our fans add it to their rotation. Let's throw the book up one more time, guys. This Thank is Football you. Done Right by Michael Lombardi. When will this be out? September is out now? 5th. No, it'll be out September, September 5th. 5th. Yep. Okay. So that Thank perfect timing. Yeah, man. Congrats on the book. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, guys, make sure you uh, like, subscribe, leave comments, do all the things. We uh, have been spending our night tonight with Michael Lombardi. Make sure to check out his book, his podcast. We will see you all later this week. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, guys. Whether you're just getting started as an investor or you're managing a multi-million dollar portfolio, Ritholtz Wealth Management has the solution for you. It all starts with building the right financial plan. To speak with a certified financial planner today, visit RitholtzWealth.com. Don't forget to check us out at YouTube.com slash The Compound RWM. Make sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcasting app. If you love investing podcasts, Check out Michael and Ben every Wednesday morning on Animal Spirits. Thanks for listening. Ritholtz Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Ritholtz Wealth Management and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as and may not be used in connection with an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or hold an interest in any security or an investment product. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Ritholtz Wealth Management unless a client service agreement is in place.